Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm the director of ECFR and this week we're going to talk about the geopolitics of the Green Deal. The European Green Deal was introduced by the new European Commission in December 2019. Its goal is nothing less than to decouple economic growth from resource use and to create an EU economy with zero net emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. In order to achieve that goal, we're going to need to see a fundamental overhaul of the European economy, which is not just a domestic issue, but it will have a dramatic impact on the EU's external relations, not just with our neighbouring countries, but also with all the great powers in the world and on the global trading and multilateral system. So to discuss the external effects of the Green Deal, I have an all-star cast here with me today. First up is Franziska Brandner, who is a member of the German Bundestag for Allianz 90, the Greens, and the spokesperson for European policy and parliamentary whip for her party, as well as an ECFR board member. Also down the line, we have Jean Pizani Ferry, who is a senior fellow at the Brussels based think tank Bruegel. He has roles in Washington and in Florence, as well as also an ECFR council member. And Simone Taglia Pietra, who's a research fellow at Bruegel as well. Simone and Jean are two of the authors of a report which ECFR and Bruegel have published this week on the topic, along with Guntram Wolf, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself. So we will put links up to that report so you can go deeper into it. But thanks to all of you for joining. And I think we should just go straight into the topic. Maybe go to you, Jean, first to kick us off. Why is the Green Deal a foreign policy issue as well as an issue about industrial policy and internal politics? Well, it's not looked at as a foreign policy issue. It's looked at as a a purely domestic endeavor with a sort of in the framework of the global drive to decarbonization the EU wants to be a leader of. But there are very concrete implications that we are pointing out in this paper that are left unaddressed. First, neighborhood. We have countries around that are completely dependent on the export of fossil fuels to the EU. Take Algeria, take well, a little further away, Nigeria, take Azerbaijan, I mean, and Russia, obviously, which exports a lot of natural gas. So first, what's going to be the fallout of this transition for these countries? Second, even if you look at the global market, you know, without looking at particular links, the EU represents 20% of total imports of fossil fuels. So, so that means any shift in our policy will have profound implication on the global market and on prices and therefore on the income of producers. Third, we are going also to shift dependency from the fossil fuel producers to the the producers of of rare earths, which are critical in some of the green technologies, especially China, which is dominant in this field at present. And fourth, finally, there is a whole issue of the trade implication of the Green New Deal with the need to offset significant differences in carbon prices with the carbon border adjustment mechanism that the EU is considering and the whole trade implication. This part is very much on the agenda, at least on the radar screen, but the other parts are, we feel, not sufficiently considered and addressed. 
So we're going to go, I think, into quite a lot of detail on that whole question of CBAM, the carbon adjustment mechanism. But before that, maybe we can look at some of these questions to do with the energy markets. Simone, can you maybe go into a bit more detail on that? You've looked at that closely. The EU spends almost over 300 billion euros a year on fossil fuels. Can you tell us a bit more about who that's going to impact, both the direct ways that Jean talked about, but also some of the indirect ways? Yeah, absolutely. The European Union has to import almost all of the gas and the oil it consumes. And as you said, this fossil fuel import bill amounts to almost 300 billion euro per year. So it is clear that with the European Green Deal, all these dimensions of oil and gas imports will progressively disappear, notably after 2030. It is after 2030 that all these energy scenarios we have point to a sharp decline of the oil and gas import into Europe. This fact will solve what has really represented a long-lasting energy security problem for Europe, which is the security of supply for oil, but notably for gas and notably Russian gas. Now, this is not to say that with the European Green Deal, Europe will not have energy security concerns at all, because the European Green Deal will also lead to new energy security issues for Europe. And notably, we point to the security issues related to the imports of green electricity and green hydrogen that Europe will certainly need, for example, from North African countries. Another very important issue relates to the critical metals and minerals that are underpinning low-carbon technologies. Solar panels, wind turbines, electric cars, batteries, all these goods require a number of minerals and metals for their manufacturing. Europe does not have at home these minerals and metals and will have to import most of them. These can lead to a new energy security issue, this time not focused on Russia like in the past, but for example, certainly focused on China. If you consider that rare herds, for example, are mainly processed in China. And this leads to a brand new game in Europe about what do we do with the diversification of these mineral supply chains? What do we do also at home with the recycling of these minerals and metals in order to manage these potential security risk. So Francisca, you're one of the sort of rare people in the world who's both an expert on foreign policy and on climate. How do you see these two things coming together? Because I think Jean is right that the whole question about the external aspects has been something of an afterthought. We spent a lot of time just trying to agree amongst ourselves how we could get to a target of zero net emissions and how different member states could be supported and, and have their transition eased. So there's been more of a kind of intra-EU debate than what some of the external consequences might be and also what kind of pushbacks we might find from the rest of the world. It's important to say again that we do the Green Deal as well because we are partners and signatories of the Paris Climate Agreement. So it is part of an international framework and it has had this external dimension since the beginning. We have been now talking about energy dependencies where we switch from fossil to probably green hydrogen and we have to manage that peacefully. And that will be a real challenge to the EU to make sure that we don't destabilize the parts of Africa that will certainly be relevant in terms of green hydrogen and moving away from fossil. So that's certainly one challenge is that it must be a peaceful transition. 
But the second one, which hasn't been mentioned, which I think is very key, is who will be the leader in the innovations and technologies that we need for decarbonizing our economies. It will be a real run of who is the first and who will develop these technologies. And this will be a combination of digital technologies and new technologies to be developed. And I think it will play out very strongly who will be first there. Will it be China? Will it be Europe, the U.S.? other actors, and who will then have to import these technologies and who can export them. So I think we shouldn't forget this competitive dimension of the geoeconomics of the Green Deal. And the second one, which was mentioned in passing, is the question, of course, of the trade dimension. Because if we will get our steel industry, our cement industry to produce it in a zero carbon way, it will certainly, at least at the beginning, be more costly. So if we then don't have any mechanism at the border, we will import CO2 full steel or cement, probably at a lower price with no positive effect for the climate and only negative effects for our industries. So they will have to go a lot of thinking into how do we adjust the price at the border. And I think that at this moment, it's high time to do this together with the US, that we don't do this as a process just purely European, but try to do it in a transatlantic way to create a transatlantic climate neutral trade area. I think that this must be really an urgency now to have these debates together now, because otherwise it could, you know, it could also be easily turned against the US, China, others. And I think we have to make sure it's not seen as a protectionist instrument, but really as a climate instrument and therefore working together with other countries to develop these mechanisms together. So let's go a bit deeper into that. I know what you said about the technology race, and we have a lot of interesting experiences around solar panels, which would be great to talk about later. But before we do that, let's just maybe go a bit deeper on the point you made about the border adjustment mechanisms. So there are two kind of main reasons why the European Commission has said that it's going to introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism. One is, as you say, Francisco, is about making sure that European companies can remain competitive if we make it more expensive to produce products. But secondly, there is this whole idea of carbon leakage, how we can make sure that we don't just become a green fortress in a brown world, because Europe only accounts for about 10% of global emissions. So therefore, unless we can make make sure that other players are also incentivized to reduce their carbon emissions. There's a danger that we just export all of our pollution to other parts of the world and we don't do anything to save the planet. But it is really complicated having carbon border adjustment mechanisms without launching a massive trade war. We had big debates about that when we were writing the paper. Jean, do you want to go into a bit more detail about some of the difficult angles, how we deal with America, how we deal with China? How do we stop people saying, as Francisca said, that this is just protectionism and therefore taking countermeasures and leading to some sort of global trade war? First, I think what you said is important that there are two reasons, and they're not the same. The one is about the the sort of neutrality as regards the competitiveness implication of having different prices of carbon and avoiding that foreign producers sell goods in the EU that's based on a lower price of carbon or a significantly lower price of carbon and therefore undercut domestic producers without any benefit for the climate. But the other one, and you alluded to that, is sort of to start from the observation, and that was William Nordhaus, the Nobel Prize winner, who made this point, that a climate coalition is by definition unstable. 
because the more countries are taking part in a carbon coalition, the more incentive you have individually to free ride and let the others do the effort and then leave the coalition. And so you need a glue for the coalition. And this glue can be a trade regime. And that's a point made by Nordhaus. He said, we need a climate club. And, and the climate club can be held together by a trade regime. So if you're not part of the climate club, you're going to face a trade penalty in the form of a tariff, which actually is not uh, raises issues of WTO compatibility. But intellectually, the case is very strong. So the question is, with whom do we want to form a coalition? And which are the, the countries, if we want to play this leadership role, the EU, which are the countries we want to be part of this coalition? And obviously, there is now considerable interest for having the U.S. on board with the Biden administration being committed to rejoining the, the Paris Agreement and to carbon neutrality by 2050. But the question is, what do we do vis-a-vis China? And that's a highly geopolitical issue. China was, at least in words, a strong ally at the time the Trump administration wanted to destroy the Paris Agreement. And thanks to this alliance, we kept the Paris Agreement alive until the U.S. rejoined. Now, I don't think it would be right to sort of form a a climate club with the U.S. and tell China, go on your own. This climate club should be open to China. And I think whatever the geopolitical conflicts between the U.S. and China or whatever the grievances we do have with China, I think it's vital for the climate coalition that China is part of it. But Simone, there are lots of geopolitical values questions and others, which I'd love to get your take on, Francisca, as well. But there's also just a simple question about the kind of way that our economies work. And China is now the biggest emitter in the world. It's opening coal-fired power stations every week, not just in China, but all over the world. Would we not end up with a very weak climate club if we allowed China to be one of the founding members? You know, Mark, I think uh, this is exactly another driver of the carbon border adjustment discussion in Europe, but also in the United States. Carbon border adjustment is not just about avoiding the risk of carbon leakage and industrial uh, delocalization to other countries, but also about incentivizing, pushing other countries in the world to move in decarbonization in a stronger manner. If you read the Biden climate program, he pledged the introduction of border adjustment measures, really also in view of fostering global decarbonization. And that's exactly the reason why I completely agree with Jean, China should be part of this climate club, because China would suffer, of course, from a joint introduction of carbon border adjustment measures by the United States and the European Union, which are China's main export markets. And this would really be a very strong incentive to get China into the club and therefore not apply carbon border adjustment measures to the goods coming into the EU and the US from China and really push the Chinese government to be uh, more consistent in their action with the climate pledges they have recently made. Because as you correctly said, we are happy about the pledge that uh, the Chinese president made the United Nations General Assembly last year about reaching carbon neutrality by 2060. But on the other hand, we still don't have a clear view of how this target will be achieved. We see, as you said, coal investments on the rise. I think there is really here a need to understand in the short term, which is really at the end of the day what matters, real action, what China will do. And this formation of a transatlantic climate club open to China and other countries could really ignite a stronger action on the Chinese side as well. So Francisca, you, a German member of parliament, you're quite familiar with 
the debate about Germany as an export Weltmeister. Lots of people are very worried about introducing border adjustment mechanisms because of the way that they could lead to accusations of protectionism. How do you think we square the sort of circle that we're talking about, about making real progress on preventing carbon leakage, helping incentivize companies to go for clean technologies without destroying the ability to have global trade, which is so central to Germany's economic future? I think first it is really about reaching out to partners to try to do it together. And I think, again, here, the most important at this point is the U.S., that we do it together with the Biden administration. It can be open to others. If others want to join, wonderful. You know, also Canada, others, I think it would be welcome. And second, it is technically not an easy issue. Seriously, like to measure how much CO2 is in a ton of steel, you need a lot of information from within the country where it has been produced. And there comes all the question marks in terms of China. How are you going to have the transparency and their commitment to really then deliver in terms of uh, data, etc. So it's technically a difficult issue, Mark, and we should not belittle it. And that's why I think, you know, we should really put all the brains that we have from the commission, from our member states, from the US, from think tankers like yourselves on how we will make it work. And third, there is, of course, also a question when it comes to green hydrogen. We talked about it and we know that we need a lot for steel. So the question is if it makes sense to still transport the entire green hydrogen across the globe to produce steel at one place and then re-export it to another place. So I think there will also have to be a rethinking of some supply chains and where we will produce what. But in that scheme, we have to make sure that wherever it will be produced, it has to be clean. And I think that's yet again another challenge where we need many other countries that we talked about earlier when we talked about the energy transition, about the role they are going to play. So sometimes I think, you know, we're too much focused on how do we just keep everything as it is and make it clean and don't think about maybe we go into a totally different mode of production and we should focus on getting the best technologies in terms of circular economy. Some of you mentioned that before, we will need to do a lot of more recycling of rare earth, of resources that we have, which is also true, for example, for cement, which is highly CO2 full. So I think maybe we should not see it as a single issue, but really try to put it in a broader context and invest much more in circular economy, recycling. How can we diversify our resources, where they come from, what we produce, where we export to? I think it's much deeper, the Green Deal in that dimension and just to border the status quo question. Okay. Jean, I know you wanted to come back in, but before you do, can I just add an extra question to you? Because I've always, as a think tanker, I've always loved the idea of carbon adjustment mechanisms because it, it feels like a sort of classic way of using Europe's economic heft to achieve political goals in an area which is very important to us. But it's also something which had a lot of trouble going from the think tank seminar into the real world because of all of the technical difficulties that Francisca is talking about. And my impression is that those the commission has pledged to come out with proposal in the summer that this is still something which most people see as a threat in order to change behavior in China rather than something that could actually happen. I mean, do you think that it really is going to happen? Let's go back to this issue of you know what we want. All that is awfully, awfully complicated for the reason that you both gave. Carbon and border adjustment mechanism is a nightmare. 
I mean, measuring the carbon content of steel is one thing, and it's roughly possible, but measuring the carbon content of a car or whatever manufactured good you're going to import is just a nightmare. You have to go through the whole value chain. So what's desirable, obviously, is not to do that. What is desirable is that countries you're trading with are doing sufficient effort to be exempted from this border adjustment mechanism. So it has to be their potential mechanism. But obviously, the first best is that you don't use it. Now, on China, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. Obviously, China cannot be part of the climate coalition unconditionally. That would be completely foolish. Obviously, China is going to be a nightmare as far as uh, verification is concerned. We know that it's already for many things, for subsidies, for all sorts of things. It's extremely hard to get a sense of what China is doing. But we have to be clear about the goal. Is the goal that we'd wish to have China in, whatever the other dimensions of the, of the conflict with China? Or is the goal that we want to use the climate club as a sort of a way of decoupling? And on that, I think you need to start from a clear thinking. And my view is that as far as climate is, is concerned, we need to have China in. Okay. Francisco, you wanted to have a two-hander on that. You know, I agree that we have to start and try it. But I think in the end, it comes down of is the EU ready to be a standard setter on climate protection or not? And that's where I go with Mark. But you have to devise a mechanism that you can apply Because if it's not applicable, nobody will see it as a challenge. We have five minutes left and we still haven't talked about, apart from the work on CBAM, what we should do. And one of the great things about this report is that it doesn't just have an analysis of the problem. We have a seven point action plan for thinking about how we can deal with the geopolitical consequences of the Green Deal. And it has two real planks in it. One is thinking about how we mitigate some of the negative impacts with other countries. We talked a bit about the CBAM bit, but there are lots of other elements which we talked about earlier. And then also the second part is sort of thinking about how we export the Green Deal to the rest of the world, because if we do want to set standards, it's quite difficult to do if we're only responsible for 10% of emissions ourselves. So the question is, is how we can actually start to shape the behavior of others and act as a catalyst for different action. Simone, do you want to run through a few of the most kind of visible proposals we make? Yes, sure. The first pillar is about managing the direct uh, geopolitical repercussions of the European Green Deal. This really implies uh, managing the repercussions, first of all, on neighboring oil and gas exporting countries, which means uh, for the EU to engage with countries like Algeria, like Russia as well, and others uh, to really foster their economic diversification in order to avoid that the sharp decrease in the oil rent will put at risk the social contract of these countries. And here I really think of the North African ones in the future. The second action is to improve the security of critical raw materials, which we already mentioned before, and then, of course, uh, manage this issue of carbon border adjustment. But then what is interesting is also the second pillar, I think, which is really the action for global leadership. And here we think uh, that uh, the EU can become a global reference and standard setter for the energy transition, most notably in the fields of uh, green bonds and green hydrogen. 
Green hydrogen is a rapidly establishing market that needs to be regulated. In the European Union, many countries, many companies are really active in this space and the EU can really create the basis for an international hydrogen market based on EU standards. The EU at the same time also represents 50% of the global issuance of green bonds. And again, there might be here the case for the EU to be the front runner in this field and become a global standard setter. Another important element in this second pillar is the export of the European Green Deal. You mentioned it before, Mark. Europe only makes up 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Either Europe is able to push the European Green Deal beyond its border, or this will actually not have an impact on the global climate. In our view, the best way to do so is to use the EU development policy better. The EU institutions and member states are the first providers of official development assistance in the world, we might utilize our development assistance to be more focused on fostering low-carbon investments, notably in Africa and in other developing countries. And this could also prove to be a good industrial policy mechanism, so to foster European utilities and low-carbon manufacturers to reach rapidly emerging markets. And this will also be a sensible foreign policy because, for example, electrifying Africa could really prove to be very important for the economic development of these countries and also their political stability in the future. That relates a bit to what you were saying earlier about the need to get technological leadership in these areas. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Because we had this very negative experience where we thought that we were global leaders in solar technologies only to discover that China had eaten our lunch. No, I think, you know, it's, it's very important that we do invest And it's really a question of a lot of money in technologies, innovations, and that we do the pricing right, the emission trading scheme, so that the new technologies can become competitive. And there must go a lot of thinking into that. And secondly, I agree, we need climate partnerships with many countries. It can be sector related. You can make a mobility partnership with India. You can make a partnership with some of these countries that are climate neutral. So there are I think, you know, many aspects that the EU can do that are not just development based, but really industry based and help us to diversify also our sources for our own production. So I think there is this element of partnerships, climate partnerships of diversification in it. And in the on Mark, what you said, you know, if we talk about the really high CO2 burners these days, we should talk about the rainforest burning. There we have, you know, Brazil, but we also have this in Africa. So I think there the EU still could do a lot in order to stop this from happening, because that is really having an immediate, very negative impact on climate. Okay, well, we will put up a link to the report on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where you can go into more detail on our seven point action plan to give some real geopolitical underpinnings to the Green Deal. But before that, we have to do one more thing on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jean, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? On my bookshelf is an old book by the great Albert Hirschman entitled National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade, 1945. And it tells us about the interference between sort of normal trade relation and and power relationship. And that's the type of thing you didn't think you would dig out at some point, but I just did it. The cost of asymmetry. So Francisco, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? 
There is a report by the Wilson Center together with Adelphi, and the title is Foreign Policy is Climate Policy, 21st Century Diplomacy. And it's a fascinating book about much of what we spoke about and with many very, I think, pointing ideas to how we can transform diplomacy and make it more pointly to the 21st century. And there is a lot of the dimension we spoke about a bit at the beginning of making these transitions peaceful. And that won't be easy. And we really have to start to invest in this now. So it's a great book. People like Anne-Marie Slaughter and others have published in that. Great. And what about you, Simone? My book is uh, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations of Daniel Yergin, which uh, really represents a, a wonderful uh, tour de force about the geopolitical implications of the energy transition for Russia, China, the United States, Europe and the world in general. Okay. And I have been reading a book called Fighting the First Wave, Why the Coronavirus Was Tackled So Differently Across the uh, the Globe by Peter Baldwin, who is a historian at UCLA and New York University. And it's a fascinating study into the different models for tackling the virus, where they come from, from history, from politics, from science. And I hope to get him on the podcast at some point to go more deeply into these topics. But for now... I hope that you've enjoyed listening to all of us. We'll put up links, as I said, on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast to all the publications that we mentioned, as well as our great new report on the geopolitics of the Green Deal. Please do let your friends and acquaintances know about it by writing on your social media pages or ours and hopefully giving us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever you use to listen to us on. But for now, from Francisca Brandner, Jean Pisani-Ferry and Simone Tagliapietra, as well as myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel.